I'm Sonia Morton Firth and you're tuned in to the Sonia Morton Firth Show. Today my guest is Dougie Grimsom, veteran, author, Hollywood screenwriter. Dougie served 18 years in the RAF and after leaving went on to write three multi-award winning feature films, including Green Street. Now Dougie runs his own production company, Red Bus Movies. Watch this interview as we discuss football culture and violence, masculinity and feminism. I believe health is the greatest form of wealth we have, which is why I'm so excited to be partnered with Brother in Arms. Brother in Arms is a wellness brand dedicated to working with veterans, first responders and anyone on the front line. Through their education, support and premium CBD products, they help alleviate and restore the lives of those that have been affected by physical and mental trauma. Learn about the life-changing benefits and power of CBD. Join their community today. Hit the link below. Dougie, thank you so much for being a guest on my show today and welcome to my home. You're thank welcome. you for it's coming. It's a beautiful home. For my audience, can you tell me who you are and what you do now? What I do now? Well, my name's Dougie Brimson. Uh, nowadays, I'm a screenwriter and film producer. And I'm dying to get into the screenwriting and film producing. Um, but before that, can we talk a little bit, Mark, can you tell me more about your journey up until that point? I do know you served 18 years. Yeah, I mean, my journey's a, a, a complicated one. Uh, I was born in uh, Hemel Homestead in Hertfordshire, uh, one of six, number three. Uh, my dad was an entertainer. Uh, he became an entertainer as we, as we grew up. And so he was always away and on the road, um, which was great. Uh, and then when I was age 16, my, all my brothers uh, um, are into music. So they're all involved in the music industry or the entertainment industry in some way. And I never was. I was always fascinated by engineering. Um, I became a motor racing fan quite early on, thanks to a neighbour. And... Um, it was just a world that really interested me. So I, I went that way at school. I did engineering. I did, you know, draftsmanship yeah. and, and all that technical drawing and all that sort of stuff. And then when I finished, uh, I got 11 O-levels, which wasn't too shabby. Oh, considering I was always out playing football. And it was O-levels, not O-levels in them days, yeah. Those. yeah. <laughs> and I was set to do my O-levels, uh, still 16. And on a whim, I just went over to Watford CIOs, made some inquiries about joining the Air Force. Um... Took a letter home to my dad, said, can you sign this? He said, what is it? I said, well, I want to join the Air Force. He said, great. And he just wanted, like, literally wanted one of us out of the house. We had no um, military connections at all. Do you remember what that whim was? No, or no, I, no idea. I don't know where it came from. Uh, but um, it was, uh, yeah, it was six months later. New Year's Eve, 1975, 31st of December. Uh, I left home, age 16, and headed for Swindleby. And how was your time in the forces? Um, I did 18 years, I'm told. Uh, I, I won't say I loved every day of it, uh, because some of it was really boring and involved people I didn't particularly like. Um, I'd almost left around about 1990, I think, because I'd become kind of dissolute, quite bored of it all. Um, 
And then uh, I got persuaded to sign on. I got promoted to sergeant, which was great. I was doing motor racing, like, on behalf of the Royal Air Force, which was great. Oh, nice. um, and then, uh, yeah, I had a, a while of a time. I mean, I th there was so many highlights. Looking on it, you know, you don't look back. You don't remember the bad times, just good times. No, it's always the right. I had amazing classes. times. I mean, I keep getting asked to write my autobiography. Mm -hmm. And I, it's just, it'd be like Forrest Gump, you know, light. It's crazy. Were you in any action? Any yeah, I, uh, um, I served during the Falklands War on Ascension okay. Island with the Falcons and stuff like that. What was that like? I remember uh, before. It was I mean, amazing. I remember Absolute, as a little I mean, girl. But... We didn't think about it at the time, but it was an amazing experience. You know, we never thought we'd go. I mean, even when we were going down, we didn't ever think this is going to happen because we thought they'd back down. But of course, they didn't. Mm. And next thing we know, it's like, well, we're off. And it was amazing to be part of that because everything you trained for, which you because we were trained, you know, the planes would go off and never come back. We were, we were training, you know, because it's Cold War. We thought that was it. And all of a sudden it was a pretty conventional war. Uh, so exciting, you know, for me, but I wasn't involved in any actual fighting. I was on a tropical island in the middle of the, you know, the sea. So I was having a wave of a time. And I don't want that, you know, I don't mean that in any way to undermine what the mm. guys who actually went and fought did. But it was an experience. Uh, and was definitely. there anything, did you, I mean, did you suffer afterwards or you, you weren't involved? Well, I, I, I don't know. I mean, you, looking back, I mean, I came back, I was the first person to be what they call disestablished on Ascension Island, which means that my job finished. And so uh, I got on a plane, flew back. Still in like khaki shorts and all that sort of stuff, carrying me rifle, which had never been fired. And um, there was no one there to meet me, no nothing. Uh, and there was lots of little things happened. I had, the first night I was back at my camp, no one had taken my rifle off me. So I ended up sleeping with my rifle in, in my room. It's mad, absolute mad. And uh, I went off on leave. There was a big reception in Hemel my hometown, which I didn't get invited to. All the veterans who'd been there were there, I never got invited. Um, my, my, my late sister now, uh, was apoplectic with rage, was writing to the papers yeah. because it was done. Um, but I, 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 looking back on it, I think I'd, I did suffer a little bit. Um, I certainly lost direction and I went, um, to see my boss and said, you know, I need a posting. I need to get away from this particular camp. Because I was at a camp where my job was largely picking up crashed aircraft, which is great fun, but it's not exactly taxing. And, uh, and he said, why don't you apply to go aircrew? So I did, and I got selected, got all the way through, went to Biggin Hill, did the tests, all this sort of stuff, and I failed on my eyesight. And I was returned to a unit which I was told, you'll never go back to. So I went back to the same lads who literally seen me off a few weeks before and uh, and that was quite a dark period um and then uh i met a woman aha uh -huh. which changed changed your changed life everything changed everything and it was in fact i'd met her before i went to biggin hill mm. it was quite a casual thing and um she doesn't think it was casual but yeah and i came back from biggin hill in a quite a dark place and i said well we might as well get married then and literally uh, six months later, less than that probably, 
we met in the December, met 18th of December, I think. She'll tell me that. And we married on the 3rd of December. Wow, years. that's quite a romantic story. It certainly, well, in terms yeah. of it happened quite fast. I, I knew pretty much, it was pretty much love at first sight. Yeah. And is that why you left? No, no, no. It was, um, we, our first baby came along literally straight away, uh, which was great. And then I got posted back to Germany. So I did four years back in, in Germany, which was fantastic. It was a brilliant tour as I'm married. Uh, we came back with another daughter. And then um, I got promoted, which was great. Another child came along. Uh, there's all sorts of loads of stuff. But, and then in 1994, and then we had the first Gulf War, of course. Yes, yes. Which was absolute chaos. Were you involved in that? Or? Uh, only, like most servicemen at that time, I, I, was stay, I was back in the UK. But we were all working. We was on 24 on 24 hours. Um, and then in 1994, uh, Maggie Thatch was uh, there. Was a redundancy program went on, and I thought, this is it. If I'm going to go, I'm going to go now. So, so I left, and that was it. Wow. So, how did you go from that to writing books? What happened was I didn't take any advantage of the REF resettlement stuff. They offered us this massive program of resettlement, and that everyone in my particular engineering trade was going into health and safety that, was, that seemed to be the primary thing which uh would have been a rise move because everyone i know who went into health and safety is earning still earning fortunes and um i left with this massive sum of money uh, as a redundancy payment and uh i just basically spent a year spending it went to florida new kitchen in the house or and then one day i put the cash point card in and there was nothing left effectively and so um, I ended up working as an extra on film and TV with my brothers. That's what they were doing. Yeah. And while we were there, we, um, my youngest brother and I had an idea to write a book about football culture, about hooliganism and all sorts of stuff like that, based on, largely on, on, our well, on our experience and opinions of what was going on. Because were you a football fan at that time? Oh, yeah. No, I'd, I'd always gone to football. Always been going to football, and I and I'd always, you know, I've been going to football since the the mid seventies. When so, if you went to football, certainly if you went away or into London like we did, you would uh, you would see trouble. It was every week. It was like that. Were you involved football. in it? Um, I'll plead. I'll plead the fifth. Not much, <laughs> but it, but for you know when you went to football, then it, it was unavoidable. If he was going travelling away, it was unavoidable. Because people were going to come looking for you. So I was born in Newcastle in the seventies, well, um, and I well, I remember football be, yeah, uh, yeah. being you know a big culture around yeah. certainly around our town, yeah. um, and and I remember seeing stuff on the news: football hooligans and uh, hooligans fighting against the police. Obviously, I was never involved with it, but I knew there was something going on. Yeah, it was it was, tri it was just a tribal thing. And it's very exciting, you know, it's great fun to be involved in that culture. It's, uh, it, without wishing to diminish the, the seriousness of it, it's a great, it's really exciting. To get, not, not necessarily fight, to go in, to go to somewhere like Newcastle and get out unscathed. Yeah, is we almost were tough, as if, right? Yeah, oh, <laughs> yeah, I could tell you some stories about Newcastle. But it, it's, getting in and getting out is almost as exciting as, you don't want to get, you know, you don't want to get battered. And you, we were a little club. You go to Newcastle, you're going to get battered probably. 
was just what an was adventure. the excitement? Can you describe just the buzz, excitement? Just the adrenaline rush. It's the greatest. The I once described it as the the um, the greatest extreme sport of all, because the buzz you get never diminishes. Was it the same buzz as that you found when you were in the army, when you were in the forces? Air force. Air force. Air force. Yeah, yeah. It's it's the same kind of comradeship because you've got to have the back of the guy with you and, and he's got to have your back you've got to have trust in everybody but it's just the banter and the laughs and the the adventures it's, it's the same but different i mean there's a lot of forces lads you speak to a lot of forces lads yeah. you know a lot of them are into football a lot of them were involved in that culture back then some still are um there's, there's a real dark side there's, to there's that, a very dark it? side to it yeah which is what we wanted to explore in the books. Because Euro 96 was coming, and we were seeing all this stuff about the, the potential threat of hooliganism, and it was World War III and all this sort of crap. And we thought, this doesn't relate to us. We read all this stuff that the World of Academia was putting out about you know, World War III and all this sort of stuff, and what the causes were that we were all unemployed, all from broken homes, you know, all basically pretty stupid. That didn't equate to our experience at all. You know, everyone I went with was, was working. Everyone was in a stable family background. Um, and so we thought we should write a book. There's an opening now to write a book about our experiences, but not our experiences because it'd be a tiny little book. But a, a look at the culture of hooliganism and ca the casual scene. And we, we hit the mark. But what, what worked for us was that once we found a publisher, and we only ever approached one publisher, we were so lucky. Um, we said, will you get us anywhere to promote this book? Anywhere you want to get us book back. And all of a sudden, you've got the BBC, who have been putting up with all these guys from Leicester University, and I'm talking absolute crap. All of a sudden, you've got two blokes with shaved heads, who've written a book, fodder, wallop. Did they think you were a skinner? I mean, obviously, the, the, the time... Well, no, my brother had a shaved head. He'd always had a shaved head. I had a shaved head because I'd just done an advert for Fujifilm. And I'd literally sat in the makeup chair and they'd run a razor over the top well, of my head without trying, even telling me. I'm trying to see the link between Fujifilm and a shaved head. Yeah, it head. was mad. Well, I was still working the next year. It's absolute okay. mad. No one had told me, so I literally sat like a badger. And, uh, and they finished off shaving my head. I did my job. And then all of a sudden, it was booked to promote. But, and I quite liked it, I stopped with everything. So um, we go into BBC, they're expecting to absolutely muller us as like racist thugs, idiots, morons. And we just sat there quite calm, quite eloquent, talking about a book, explaining what it was all about. And uh, everybody, we were everywhere, you know, from the BBC to Good Morning TV to Late Night TV, everyone wanted to talk to us, it was brilliant. The book went mental, absolutely mental. Now we thought, we're only going to write one book because it'll be like Lord of the Rings. We'll be retiring. Doesn't work like that at all. So we did, uh, Eddie and I did um, three more books within about the next two or three years. And uh, he went off to do another book with someone else. I did another book with the same, same publisher, which is my own book. And, uh, and he went off and did something else and I just carried on writing. And how did you go from that to screenwriting? Uh, Green Street was my well no actually I got approached um, by a guy called John Baird who, who ended up doing um, Phil, the Overmouth film Filth and the Laurel and Hardy biopic and he's just doing a thing called Tetris about the guy who invented Tetris, Tetris. big deal 
And, uh, and this, he wanted to do a film, his first film, a short film about football hooliganism. So we did, I met with him and we did that. And whilst that was going on, I got told about this woman who wanted to make a film about football hooliganism, this American one. And, uh, and basically I got in touch with her using a dodgy address to check her out. Um, she ended up being sound as a pound. So we, I, she flew me out to Hollywood, which is very nice. Uh, we thrashed the idea out and um, developed a script. Then she won an Oscar. Oh no, she got Oscar nominated. No, she won an Oscar, I think, I can't remember. Uh, and all of a sudden, for a short, for another short film, and then all of a sudden people are throwing money. And that was it, that's how it came about. Next thing we know, we're shooting. Uh, me and her had a massive fallout. Um, over like all sorts of lots of different dialogues. So all of your, well, not all of your films, yeah. but the majority of your films have got a theme of violence running through it. I, I recently watched We Kill the Old Way. Great, you know, good, great movie. Um, but I, I, I guess I found it a little disturbing. But there is a, a lot of violence in your films. Yeah. Why do you think violence? Sell um, well, because it's a there's a particular audience for it, you know. The, the certainly the producer because I'd done top, I'd adapted my the sequel to the crew of Top Dog, I'd adapted with this producer for the screen, uh, and that's the hooligan film, you know. And um, and on the back of that, we did we still kill the old way. Well, violent gangster films are he's stuck in trade, so uh, so I just did another one with him. Um, and then after that, it w that wasn't a very nice experience either. And so I said, uh, I'm not going to do it anymore. I'm not interested in screenwriting anymore. Um, and I went back to doing books, um, played around with some scripts, but just on ideas either. Had nothing to do with gangsters. I was not interested in doing a gangster. I mean, if someone pitches an idea to me, there is one massive turn off. It's the word drugs. I won't do anything to do with drugs. I've no interest in it at all. Yet yeah, the violence and the football. Yeah, in, in the real world, they go hand in hand. Yeah. It's just not something I'd ever been interested in. I'm very anti-drugs, so I'm certainly not going to do anything that in any way promotes that culture. Does that mean you're, if you're anti-drugs, are you into violence? Uh, no, but in the, in the world of football, they, they kind of go hand in hand, unfortunately. Um, I'm interested in that. I guess, um, and just to stereotype, obviously, I'm a woman. Yeah. Is it? It's obviously a men, a male-dominated. Uh, football is a very yeah, male-dominated yeah, game. Yeah, but primarily because most people who go football are blokes. Yeah. So yes. it, you know, and it becomes a, it was. It's always been a very mass. I mean, traditionally, it kicked off at three o'clock. On a Saturday, because the blokes finished work at twelve o'clock on a Saturday, and they went to the pub. And, and you were just about to say, I think, without taking words out, it's a very masculine. It always was. That's changed since the formation of the Premier League. Um, and now with the, and, and going a slightly off topic, obviously our generations are changing. Yeah. Um, you know, there's this weird snowflake around at the moment. How do you think, um, I'm, want of a better word, the modern man would have fit back into... I, oh, blimey. I think <laughs> if you took a bloke from the 80s even and dropped him into today, he would not have a clue about what to do. I mean, I... I I'm 60, almost 63, and uh, and I'm completely baffled by some of the things that go on today. I, I think a lot of blokes have completely uh, no idea about where they fit in this mental world. We've I got. think it's changed, mass it's changing it's the cha role model. No, I think, it's, I think it's changed for the worse. I think a lot of blokes just haven't got any direction. Mm -hmm. um, 
because they don't know where they fit. You know, the way things are going, blokes are going to be redundant in 10 years anyway. Women don't even need to have kids anymore. I mean, look, I'm not, I'm not here saying, dis- even though I am a woman, and obviously I, I agree in equality and all the rest of it, but I do think things have shifted, and like you say, I'm not quite sure if it is for the best. I, I, I think there is so much going on that the safest way is just not to take part in any talk about it. Just carry on doing what you do. And for most people, that's the norm anyway. All the you know the stuff about the woke stuff and the trans debates and no one really gives a shit apart from this tiny minority of people. Well, it is a minority, of, isn't yeah, it? They're they're very driving, they're being allowed to drive this agenda, it, it, it infuriates me. It absolutely infuriates me. But um, I stopped getting involved in that debate because it stopped me doing actual stuff and employing people and making money. So. Yeah. I took a step back it's from that kind of... Yeah, the controversy to say. But the, the violence bit, anyway, sorry, I, I, I didn't no, interrupt no, you because it, it is interesting about what side of, you know, how it is quite a masculine trait, yeah. uh, I think, more than a feminine yeah, trait. Yeah. That, that's because the sexes are different. Well, They are different. You know, we're not the same. No, we're, we're not. not. We're not. Exactly. And, and, and actually, I, I'm I proud of We should be proud of that. Of course we are. You know, I... I you know, I said a long time ago, the worst thing feminism ever did was give up the art of femininity. You know, it's uh, it just frightens me. Viva the difference, I say. Yeah, um, well, I, I am with you there, but anyway. It's mad, madness to me. So, sorry, uh, going back to, um, so you, you'd walked away from this. Yeah, I'd walk, um, I walked away from Screamer and I had no interest. Um, and then I became disillusioned with the world of publishing. Uh, because it was getting increasingly tough because publishing, and I, I, I speak from my own experience because it's the only experience I've got, is dominated by middle-class females, the world of commissioning in particular. You know, and, and if I've got to go into pitch a book about lads or whatever, you know, I'm a 62-year-old bloke pitching to a 30-year-old girl named Sarah who lives in the suburbs. She doesn't even want to listen to me, let alone meet me at all, because I'm her dad, or granddad in some cases. But, but surely Sarah, uh, fictional Sarah, can see there is still a market. Yeah, you would think that, wouldn't you? Because there's a market for everything, yeah, right? Just because Sarah doesn't want to read but that. But the, mar- the, the, the market of, for Ladley, and I use that term advisedly, is, there's never been, never been um, supplied. It's because it's being driven largely by women. And they don't, most women don't get blokes at all. Certainly don't get what we want to read. Well, no, I don't think we do get blokes. They don't. And I don't think so blokes get 50, women. You've I got think 50% it's of the population are kind of being um, starved of, of reading material. You know, when we started the, the, hooligan, the hooligan books, okay, they started calling it um, hooligan lit. It was christened hooligan lit, okay? Uh, I didn't start it, but they call me the godfather of hooligan lit. But there were guys long before me writing. Certainly guys who were better than me writing. But we were just churning stuff out, and it was getting snapped up. Within a short space of time, not only did we bring, like, thousands of blokes back into reading, many many of whom had never read a book, no interest in reading, because there was nothing for them. Mm. And all of a sudden, there's a bloke like them writing about them. Isn't that there's thrillers, there's action, there's murder. But not everyone, not every bloke wants to read an SAS book or a biography of Paul Gascoigne. 
you know, you just want stories. Why not? Really dull and boring <laughs> football autobiography. Yet within a short space of time, we brought tens of thousands of guys back into reading. Over the course of literally four or five years, there were 70 odd books brought out in that genre by different publishers, most of whom were written by first-time authors. That's an astonishing thing. And they sold millions, made a lot of people an awful lot of money. And then when the interest in the genre waned, as it did quickly, uh, no one leapt in to fill it with something else. Now, you've got books like My Stuff, The Crew, you know, Top Dog, In The Know. There's other fictional books about football in there. There's guys, proper football hooligans, who jumped in and wrote you know, their biographies, which are really interesting stuff, which did really, really well. But in terms of like stories for blokes, there's next to nothing. You go in Smith's or Waterstones and have a look. So tell me what you're doing now. Um, well, I'd, I'd effectively, I had a book out last May called In The Know, it's my last thriller. And um, I'd, I had a few scripts I'd written for myself, which I pumped out to see if I could get a sniff. Um, two had got very close to going, uh, but it didn't get over the line, which most of them don't. And then I got approached, um, this guy had been badgering me for about four years, saying he had an idea of setting the Falklands, an idea for a story setting the Falklands. So I'd just finished In The Know, uh, and that went, was going off to be published. And he, he contacted me and I said, oh, okay, I'll come meet And he, he gave me this idea, which just blew me away. It was just an idea he'd had. He's not a, um, an author, not a create, he's not creative, he's a business guy. And this thing blew me away. And so I said, well, I'm in. And um, we, we've developed it. In fact, there was a meeting about it this morning. Um, it's a TV series. Uh, yeah, it's gonna be it's gonna be immense. So um, once we were doing this, he said, "Well, what what you know? Do you want to do another one? Do you want to do anything? what else have you got?" And I said, "Well, I've got these scripts." And he said, "Well, what's happening with them? Uh, let's do some boom blah blah blah." And I said, uh, "You know, I I just can't be asked dealing with all this crap with pitching and all that sort of stuff because it's really tedious." And he said, "Why don't you do it myself? We'll do it. Set up a company. We'll do it." I'll make it happen. I do deals every day. This is just a different sort of deal. And, uh, and in his front garden is a, a double-decker bus. Big double-decker bus. A route master bus. I ask why there's a double-decker bus. It's a long story, but it involves his yeah. dad. His dad was a, uh, his dad's very wealthy and used to run a bus company. Okay. So he bought a load of route master buses and there's one still in his garden. And I said, okay, we'll call him Red Bus Movies. And literally within two days of doing it, um, we had a sniff on a script. And um, that was called, that was a script called, uh, at the time it was called The Old Gits. It was about four old boys. Quite like that title. Yeah. And, uh, but my, the guy I wrote it with, a guy called Gary Lawrence, who, who co-wrote We Still Kill Um we had had a, a, a discussion with a, a very, famous old actress, elderly actress, I should say, the wonderful Susan Penelligan, um, about why she was never on screen anymore. And uh, she said, because no one ever writes for us. We're all doing theatre. 
you know, if they want a 70-year-old woman, they get a 40-year-old woman and make her up to look 70. It's, uh, it's terrible. It's Sorry, as a woman. So like, you've got all... It's crazy. It's something, we grow old, yeah. yeah absolutely it's crazy. It, Why is it okay for a bloke to grow old and yeah, not a woman to grow yeah, old? Yeah, that's just society, isn't it? So we just said, well, if no one else is doing it, why don't we do it? And so we, we adapted the old gits. To old birds. <laughs> to old birds. Renamed it the general sex. Uh, it's a most amazingly funny story. Um... And this guy, Chris, we got in touch with a producer I'd worked with before who always wanted to do a movie with me. Another veteran, a guy called John Adams. And uh, and we're off. Next thing we know, Joan Collins is doing it. Wow. Cassidy Little's doing it. We film in March. Filming in March, so people March. wait to come. Yeah. Yeah. Wow, Debbie. And from then, but from then, it just went. The whole thing went. Because one of the things I started... I said, if we're going to do this, then I've got to have reasons to do it other than make money because it's all, a, you know, it's the entertainment business. It's a business. But key to it is making me money because I don't want to keep doing this forever. So the more money I make, the better. So everything's structured in a way that makes us more money so we can pour it back into other stuff. And everybody does. Everybody does that. And you employ that. Sorry, because I well, make yeah. well, I mean, one, you one of the things, course. yeah, one of the things I said from the, the off is that I want to employ at least 25% veterans on set because I want to, A, a employ guys. B, I want to bring guys into the, the movie industry because we don't want to do it in the normal way. Why veterans? Because, so the, and there's a specific reason for it. I don't want to do it in the normal way. You know, the film game. The deal thing, you know, Chris, my business partner, he does all that. I mean, he just bangs doors down. Not like, you know, you pitch out and you have a lunch in Dean Street and you talk bollocks for ages. Nothing ever happens. He's like, bang, give me money. Let's get this movie done. And I don't write in a different way. I'll write a, draft, a couple of drafts of a script and then I'll get a director in because it's a director's film. It's not my film. So once the director's in, I give him the script and say, right, you tell me what you want me to do. And then we'll work together and develop the script. I'm not precious about... Mm. Credits and that sort of crap. The press is about money and get stuff done, which is why I bring veterans in because veterans get stuff done. I don't want to have to tell someone I need you to do this and then explain to them how I need it done and then hope it's actually going to get done. I want to employ someone who I say, I need you to do this, can you do it now? And I know it's going to get done. I don't have to think about it again. So, um, and that runs right through. I've approached, uh, actually only this morning, I've approached um, an ex-Royal Navy Wren writer called Dee Chilton, who's a brilliant writer. Um, she's just not had that break. She's won loads of awards, she's just not had that break. And I want to bring her into a project to co-write that as part wow. of, to lead the writing team. Um, and so that's really the, the ethos that drove us on. That and I want, we've got a no arsehole policy in the company. So everybody who comes in has got to be liked by everybody. They've got to fit in. If they don't, they're out or they don't come in. Uh, most veterans are, you it's know, I want, much to, well, I want to create that, that environment where we're not afraid to say this or say that, you know, like banter is okay. Um, you've got to trust people. You've got to faith in people. And they've got to trust you, which is, is how I like. When we, we filmed a, a one, we spent a day filming with um, Joan Collins and uh, Cassidy Little, uh, great Cassidy Little. And uh, of the, I think we had 20 people on set, um, 16 of them were veterans. Brilliant. So we had about 75%. Fantastic. 
because uh, all especially to fake teams were vets. Um, so yeah, it was brilliant. Dougie, you've led quite a life there. <laughs> I mean, from from starting point. Um, writing over 16 books, screenplays, all your time in the military. Who is Dougie Grimson? A tired old man at the moment. I was up at half three this morning working. It's just ridiculous. Uh, I'm, I'm riding a Christopher Wave at the minute. I mean, I've got four films on the go. Uh, so, yeah, it's exciting. Have you found your purpose? No. Oh, now that was a definite no. Yeah, because I, I don't think... Um, I mean, you, you get a guy like Joe, who you had on. Mm, yeah. That's a, that's a purpose. You know, I haven't got that. I, I've never had that. I was, I've looked, I looked for it for a long time, and uh, I never really got it. Um, so all I can do is uh, carry on doing what I'm doing. I hope maybe one day something will turn up. But, uh, You'll find it. Maybe, I hope so. Why do you think you haven't found it? I don't know. Don't know. That's a difficult question. Yeah. The great unanswered question. Maybe not. Maybe it's not looking in the right place. Yeah, maybe. Maybe it's not. Maybe it's a bit of selfishness, laziness. Uh, who knows? But it will turn up in the end. How? What advice would you give? Um, maybe men that are watching this that maybe are struggling or a bit lost in their ways because of what we talked about before, how things are shifting. Um, things have changed since yeah. our, your generation. Never give up. It's, it's so easy to say never give up. I mean, I've retired five times, you know. Uh, my writing career was over, effectively over at one point. Um, I had every, all the rights to all of my books handed back to me because they just weren't selling. And then out of the blue, ebooks came. Literally four days later. I had a letter from a guy, can we publish one of your books as an ebook? Just see how it does. Wow. Within literally, it was literally four days of receiving the last rights back for one of my books. And my career went stratospheric, you know, within a month. Never, ever give up, you know. And it's, it's so easy to say, but there's always someone out there you can lean on, especially as a vet, there's millions of us, you know. Yeah, you just got to have the bottle to ask. The toughest bit is asking. And, and if, uh, if you look back on your own life lessons, is there one thing that really stands out, one key moment of your life that you think, I made the right, that was, that was the right thing to do? Um, apart from uh, marrying my missus. Oh. Well, actually, that's beautiful, that in itself. Is... Yeah, yeah, she's not bad. Um, I think the key moment for me was I had an opportunity for a job um, and I didn't take it because I thought something's coming, something else is coming. I just had a gut feeling that something else is coming. I love that, a gut feeling. Trust your gut. Trust your gut. Yeah, your heart lies, your brain lies, your gut never lies. Dougie, I feel like that's the moment we should, we should pause <laughs> this. I've just got to say thank you so much um, for being a guest on my show. I found this conversation really, really interesting. Um, and maybe push me out my, outside my comfort zone a little bit as well. So thank you. Thank you. It's been a pleasure. Thank you. Hope you enjoyed the show. Remember, there's a new interview out every Monday. So hit subscribe and like 
and you'll get it straight into your inbox.